Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. God is still on the throne, and prayer changes things. Today, we continue our month-long celebration of Southwest Radio Ministries' 90th anniversary. The entire month of April, we have special programs from our radio vault, exciting announcements about the future of the ministry, and we'll be announcing a unique opportunity to support the ongoing work of SWRC. Today, we'll open the Radio Vault and listen to former longtime host, author, and Bible teacher David Weber present more of his outstanding presentation on Satan's 12 Apostates. And then a little later, we'll ask Pastor Larry another important Bible question. Now, let's step inside the Radio Vault and listen to former host and author David Weber all the way from 1987 as he shares his insight on Satan's 12 Apostates. Apostate number seven, Simon Magus, the evil clergyman. The Christian should never lose sight of the fact that his real enemy in life is not human. Yet he is crafty and dangerous. As we read in 1 Peter 5, 8, Be sober, be vigilant, for your adversary, the devil, like a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. You should take heart and not faint, however. Christ has prophesied that satanic forces would never be able to completely destroy the church. Upon this rock, the rock being the confession of Peter, that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God, that by faith in Him and His finished work on Calvary's cross, you receive eternal life, the promise of God. And God said, Upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Matthew 16 and verse 18. In our last study, we learned that immediately after Christ's ascension to heaven, Satan came out like a roaring lion and began to physically assault the church at Jerusalem with a series of persecutions perpetrated by the Jewish religious leaders. We recall that this heinous effort had been spearheaded by Satan's fifth great apostate, Caiaphas the high priest. We also remember that this man orchestrated the crucifixion of Christ. The net effect of this violent pressure was to drive the Christians out of Jerusalem into the surrounding countryside. This migration, of course, actually began the fulfillment of Christ's prophecy. You shall be witnesses unto me in Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. Acts 1, verse 8. Note that one area specifically mentioned in this prognostication was Samaria. Much of the story of Satan's seventh apostate takes place in that region. We read in Acts 8 and verse 5, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria because of the persecution and preach Christ unto them. When the deacon Philip fled to Samaria, he came down preaching. As a result, a great evangelistic campaign broke out, and many souls were redeemed from among Satan's kingdom because of his powerful preaching. Recall that Samaria had been one of the first successful mission fields that Jesus had encountered in his walk among men. Read in John 4, 
the episode of the Samaritan woman at the well. Much joy was manifest among the people because of the great miracles of healing and the exercising of demons taking place, according to Acts chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. Without question, Satan was incensed at this situation for at least two reasons. First, he realized that he had been unable to contain the Christian gospel and the church's activities within the confines of Jerusalem. Second, the good news that Christ saves by grace through faith was now spreading into the world at large. Praise God. From the events that later transpired, it is suggested that the adversary chose this time to introduce a new apostate into the world. We shall see that the effect of his ministry would be to initiate policies and practices that would tend to pollute the Christian clergy. Through the ministry of this apostate, Satan would attempt to corrupt the church from within and turn the eyes of the people away from God's glory and grace and direct them rather towards sensuality and materialism. One might say that Satan was working both sides of the street. From the outside, the pagan emperors were murdering and persecuting Christian martyrs with unheard of violence. On the other hand, this new satanic apostate would introduce within the church a spirit of evil that would inspire and corrupt the unredeemed clergyman toward licentiousness and debauchery as the years wore on. News of the success of Philip's evangelistic campaign in Samaria reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and the leaders were amazed. Peter and John were commissioned to go to Samaria and observe what was going on there, according to Acts 8 and verse 14. Before Philip had arrived in the north, there had lived in Samaria a certain magician named Simon Magus. His ability to perform supernatural feats of black magic caused the people to believe that he was a great one, according to Acts chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. It was written that Simon held the people of Samaria totally in his control. All that changed, however, when Philip began to preach the gospel. To get the world's attention and to encourage people to believe the gospel during this early age of the apostolic church, God frequently permitted his ministers to manifest power of healing. Mark 16, verses 17 and 18. This was certainly taking place in Samaria. God was allowing Philip to physically heal a few of the infirmed Samaritans in order to save many of them by faith. Now it is apparent that Simon Magus observed all this miracle working and desired to learn Philip's secret in order to expand his own satanic powers. It should be obvious that this was his purpose when he went down, supposedly accepted the Christian faith, and was baptized. See Acts chapter 8, verse 13. When Peter and John arrived in Samaria, they began to lay hands on the new believers, and the Holy Spirit was imparted to them. Acts chapter 8 and verse 17. Simon observed this practice and noted the power with which the apostles were imbued. He immediately sought them out 
desiring for them to do the same to him so he could use this power, obviously, for selfish purposes. So desirous was he of this, he even offered to pay the apostles money for their services. See Acts chapter 8, verses 18 and 19. For this act, Peter and John rebuked Simon sharply and exhorted him to repent. Acts 8, verses 20 to 23. With this exhortation, the scriptures complete their treatment of Simon Magus. One might think that the story was ended. However, the secular and traditional sources would lead us to believe that this was not the end of Simon Magus' affair. Virtually every Bible encyclopedia testifies that Simon Magus went on to bigger and better things, which we will shortly discuss. The question might well be asked, how can we call Simon Magus an apostate? How could he possibly be considered one of Satan's great twelve? The scriptures themselves bear witness that Simon himself believed also. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed beholding the miracles and signs which were done. Acts 8 verse 13. It is apparent that the rebuke that Peter and John gave Simon, however, was never taken seriously by him. Later information gleaned from early Christian writers suggests he hardened his heart and going the way of Cain, the pristine apostate, turned away from the truth and returned to the kingdom of Satan to continue the work of his evil Lord. Because of his position and activities, we will shortly relate. We unhesitatingly label Simon Magus as an apostate of the highest order and further declare that the effects of his ministry remain with us to this day. Virtually every Bible dictionary and encyclopedia has mention of Simon Magus. Referring to these sources, the modern student can easily reconstruct a brief but rather complete biographical sketch of him. According to the interpreter's dictionary of the Bible, after his experience in Samaria, Simon Magus resurfaced in other Mediterranean localities such as Caesarea, Tyre, Tripoli, Laodicea, and Antioch. It has been written that in each of these great eastern metropolitan communities, Simon would seduce the inhabitants with his feats of magic and evil doctrine. It would appear from these accounts that Simon never got over his impression of that evangelistic campaign in Samaria and sought to develop his own apostate religion, which had many similarities to Christianity. Perhaps he patterned his success with crowds after Philip's charisma. It has been said that much of Simon's religion was patterned after the true gospel and revelation of God. However, it was corrupted and changed to suit his evil, selfish purposes. According to Christian tradition, at each city visited by Simon Magus, Jesus' apostle Peter would arrive and put Satan's apostate to rout. In his path, however, he left thousands of converts to his evil cult, thousands who were deceived 
and rejected the true gospel. It is said that after many years and many cities visited, Simon Magus, perverted gospel and all, finally made his way to Rome. Once in the Eternal City, he began to deceive the masses and developed a huge following. So great was his reputation in Rome that many of the Christians of that apostolic era came to look upon him as the Antichrist himself. One legend had it that Simon had himself buried for three days attempting to imitate the Lord's resurrection. We recall that Satan is a great imitator of God, Isaiah 14, verse 14. Another legend relates that Simon Magus told the throngs that he had the power to fly like a modern-day Superman of comic book fame. According to the legend, Satan's seventh apostate did accomplish this by communicating with invisible spirit beings who held him aloft in the sky, deceiving the crowds of people below. Obviously, such supernatural acts influence thousands of otherwise good men to accept his false doctrine. The legend continues and declares that Peter arrived in Rome at this point, hot on Simon's trail. The apostle entered into Simon's arena and witnessed the evil magician flying high above the heads of the enthralled crowd. It is said that Peter prayed to his God, and holy angels were immediately dispatched, who distracted Simon's spirit supporters. With the diversion of the demons, the laws of physics made quick work of the magician, as he immediately fell to his death. So much has been written about Simon Magus, and so fanciful are the stories about him, that many liberal Bible scholars today doubt that he ever lived. The preponderance of opinion among both liberal and conservative students, however, is that he was a historical character, although many believe that his feats were highly exaggerated. You might well ask, what doctrine did Simon Magus teach? How was it influenced by the gospel of Christ? Why do we include him as one of Satan's twelve great apostates? Without question, he was a great man in the ancient world. People are said to have worshipped Simon with pictures, idols, images, sacrifices, and libations. As far as his doctrine is concerned, Bishop Eusebius relates that in his travels, Simon Magus carried with him a beautiful woman named Helena, who was his paramour, as well as his assistant in his magical performances. The early Christian writer, Irenaeus, states that Simon, through Helena, conceived in his mind that the lower angels, archangels, and powers by whom the world was formed. Simon boasted that he and Helena had pre-existed the creation. Helena was held captive by these lower powers from jealousy, was abused by them, was compelled to be born again and again until she finally became a professional prostitute. She represented the lost sheep of the gospel, and Simon the deity 
had assumed human form to come down and redeem her. Therefore, Simon taught that the Old Testament scriptures were inspired by these evil lower powers who had created the world. The net result in believing this false gospel, according to Simon Magus, was that by becoming a follower of his, you rejected God's holy scriptures, were saved by Simon's grace, and were then free to behave as you pleased. Eusebius declared that Simon's religion was a very licentious form of worship. Again, the question might be asked, why do we submit Simon Magus as Satan's seventh great apostate? Without any question, he may well have cut a dubious but notorious path across the ancient world in the middle part of the first century. But why do we believe that his influence was so great that he deserves inclusion in Satan's Hall of Fame? There are several answers to that question. First, Bishop Eusebius states that Simon Magus was the author of the Gnostic heresy, which was such a great thorn in the side of early Christianity. Some Christian writers have suggested that the letter to the church at Ephesus, the church of the apostolic age, in the book of Revelation, seems to have a vague reference to Simon and the Gnostic heresy. Reading Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. I know thy words and thy labor and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them who are evil. And thou hast tried them who say they are apostles. Remember, Simon Magus claimed to be an apostle with a new gospel. And thou hast tried them who say they are apostles and are not and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, the works and deeds of the believers of the Gnostic heresy, which I also hate. Gnosticism was a pseudo-Christian religion widely practiced during the early days of the church age, which taught that the world was an evil place. According to both Christian and Gnostic theology, God was a good and gracious God, being such. The Gnostics taught that a good God could not possibly have created an evil world. They held that God had created another deity who was good, but not quite as good as the original. This second god then created a third deity who was inferior to him. The Gnostics believed that this process continued through several generations, each new god becoming progressively more evil than his predecessor, until the point was reached that a divine being had been created who was sufficiently vile to create the present evil world. In this manner, the original good God was thus isolated from the evil world. Obviously, such false doctrine repudiated the incarnation of the Holy God into the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Reflecting upon the doctrine of Simon given before, one can compare the two and see the stamp of Gnostic teaching all through it.
For instance, the most base of those inferior gods were those lower powers who had tormented Helena. Thus, Eusebius and Justin were probably right. The Gnostic heresy may well trace its roots all the way back to Simon Magus. It bears repeating. Many Bible scholars believe that the Nicolaitans mentioned in Revelation 2.6 were Gnostics. It has been said that one of the main purposes of the Gospel of John was to refute this heinous teaching. John's statement, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. John, the first chapter, verses 1 and 14, categorically repudiated the Gnostic heresy. The religious faith of the Gnostics was widespread in the ancient world and created much confusion for the primitive church. In those days of widespread paganism, one had to be careful at whose table of religion he dined. Gnosticism, a very successful tool of Satan, lasted for centuries. Without question, it deceived thousands of otherwise good people, preventing them from experiencing the miracle of the new birth through grace by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been listening to a Watchman on the Wall program from 1987 featuring David Weber as he shared his insights on Satan's 12 apostates. Today we're excited to offer, back in print for the first time in over 35 years, Dr. Lubert Hargrove's book, Satan's 12 Apostates. Also, David Weber's complete series on Satan's 12 Apostates from 1987, eight messages on four CDs. Order the book and CD set today when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. And when you order both the book and CD set, we'll include David Weber's timely book, Heaven and Hell, for free. All three items are available when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Now it's time to ask Pastor Larry a question. Pastor Larry, what is the difference between the gospel of the kingdom and the gospel of grace? And which should we preach? In order to answer this question, we have to think a bit about the relationship of the Old Testament to the New Testament. All revelation functions in a covenantal context. When we read a statement or passage in the Bible, that statement or passage functions within a particular covenant and should be understood in terms of its place in that covenant. Furthermore, Revelation is progressive in the sense that the book of Isaiah reveals more of God's character and nature than what is revealed in Leviticus. God did not say all he had to say in the first books of the Old Testament. The Old Testament, particularly the Mosaic legislation, gave, in very specific detail, what was required of the Old Testament Jew living under the Mosaic Covenant. Because of its covenantal context, everything it said to those who were living under the Old Covenant was binding on them and all under that covenant. However, Christians living in the Age of Grace or the Church Age are not under the Mosaic Covenant, and therefore all the details of the Mosaic Covenant are not binding on Christians today. 
When Jesus Christ died on the cross as a propitiatory sacrifice for the sins of the world and rose from the dead, the Old Testament rituals, which were types and shadows looking forward to the person and work of Christ, were completely fulfilled. When Christ ascended into heaven and the Holy Spirit was poured forth on the church as a universal donation for the church age, a new and powerful dynamic that applied God's law to the hearts of his people gave a new freedom from ritual that did not exist under the Old Covenant. There are also other distinctions that need to be made. For example, while Abram was justified by faith, the content of Abram's faith was not the same as the content of saving faith today. Abram's faith was focused on the promise that he would have a great number of descendants more than could even be counted. In Genesis 15:5 and 6, we are told, And he, that is the Lord, brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. In Scripture, the same words can have different meanings depending on the context, such as the word gospel, a word that means good news. Jesus came to earth as Israel's Messiah, the one who would establish the kingdom of God on earth. The words, the gospel of the kingdom, refer to the good news that God would establish his kingdom on earth, an earthly millennial kingdom of peace and righteousness in a time when Israel would live in her homeland and experience the blessings of fruitfulness and productivity. So the words, the gospel of the kingdom, refer to what is usually termed today the millennium, or the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's from Matthew 6.10. Jesus was praying not for the church age, but for the kingdom age to manifest on earth. In a limited sense, the gospel of the kingdom, that is the good news of the kingdom, is good news even for those of us living in the church age. We can all rejoice that one day, there will be a kingdom of righteousness and truth on the earth, a time when sin and unrighteousness will be greatly restrained on earth. Today, we don't need to ask, which gospel should I preach, the gospel of the kingdom or the gospel of grace? We are indeed living in the age of grace, and the gospel that we preach today is a gospel of grace. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that none of yourselves that is the gift of God. We read in Ephesians 2 verse 8. However, our preaching today is not to focus on the kingdom. Our focus is to be Jesus Christ, the virgin-born Son of God who died, was resurrected, and is coming again. When someone asks, what must I do to be saved, our answer is that which is given in Acts 16:30 and 31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy household. Back in print for the first time in over 35 years, Dr. Lubrit Hargrove's book, Satan's Twelve Apostates. Also, David Weber's complete series on Satan's Twelve Apostates from 1987. Eight messages in all on four CDs. Order the book and CD set today when you call 1-800-652-1144. When you order both the book and CD set, we'll include David Weber's timely book, Heaven and Hell, for free. All three items are available when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. 
Tomorrow, we look back at another anniversary celebration with Noah Hutchings and Kenneth Hill. Watchmen on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and has been supported for over 90 years by faithful listeners just like you. Please visit our website, swrc.com.